was the first time I had ever seen what an artillery round does right in person. I mean, I'd seen artillery rounds fired way off in the distance. But to see the just the impact that it makes on an area where it lands, it was, it was startling. And I thought about that this week as I was studying the passage. Because we've been talking about faith. Right? Do we, do we have faith? And what, what is faith? And why is faith important? And as we think about faith and what it is and why it's important, one of the things that we should be able to recognize from this is that faith should make an impact on our lives. Right? Just as a, an artillery round hitting the ground leaves a noticeable imprint, faith in the life of a person should leave a noticeable imprint. There should be an impact that faith makes on our lives, a, a visible impact, regular impact. So what kind of impact does faith make on our lives? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, I, I don't know what page that's on in your pew Bibles, but if you get to Revelation, you went too far, go back a little bit. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. And we're going to look at verses 4 through 7. Hebrews 11 and 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away that he should not see death, and was not found because God had taken him, for before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. The title of the message this morning is, What kind of impact does faith have on my life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today, and God, you are great and awesome and worthy, and we want to live a life that demonstrates all of that. We want to, to live a life, Lord, that demonstrates that we, we trust your character enough to act on your promises. We ask you, God, to help us right now to lay aside the cares of life. Help us, Father, to, to let any distractions go away, God, and just give us a clear head and a clear focus upon you. And let your word be the authority in our lives. Father, guide me as I speak this morning. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. And give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you once said. We need you, God, to guide us. We need you to help us. Uh, just do, do great things in our midst today, Father. Change us, sanctify us, save us, encourage us, strengthen us. Help us and just guide us that what we do here today would make a difference in how we live tomorrow. That people would see in us the greatness of our God and the, the reality of His promises, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let you may be seated. Now the key passage in probably Hebrews 11, and for our series, is verse 6. Without faith it's possible to please Him, for He comes to God, must believe that He is, and He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That is the thing that we want to, we're, we're keying in on really throughout the whole series. Right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we talked about this the first week, just the idea that it doesn't say without faith it's hard to please God. Or the idea that without faith it's, you know, 
we shouldn't be able to please God. But the idea without faith, we cannot please God. Now, with that in mind, that means faith is significant. Faith is extremely important, and we need to know what it is and what impact it should have upon our lives. The kind of faith spoken of in Hebrews 11.6, well, it's not just the kind of faith that believes God exists, right? It's not just that initial saving faith. Certainly, it starts there. The verse says uh, that... Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, right? So there's that initial, I believe there is a God. It probably would even consider there, I believe that God sent Jesus down the cross for my sins, right? That initial saving faith. But it moves on from beyond that. And I said, must also believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, right? So it is a, a kind of faith that says, here's what God has said. I believe that God can do what he has said he will do. I believe that God will do what he has said he will do. So I'm going to make decisions, make life decisions, based on the character and the nature and the promises of God. If you were here last week, we defined faith as faith being. Faith is trusting God's character enough to act on his promises. That is the kind of faith that pleases God. It is a faith that trusts his character. He is who he says he is. He can do what he says he will do. And that then makes life decisions based upon that testimony of God's character and God's nature. And the main thing I want us to understand today is that faith motivates me to take actions that please God. And that's what we see all throughout Hebrews 11. That's what we see in these characters here today. All of them did things. They did things because they believed God. Abel believed God and so he offered a sacrifice. Enoch believed God and so he walked with God. Noah believed God and so he built an ark. And in every instance, their faith... It motivated them to take actions, and those actions pleased God. So what kind of actions does our faith motivate us to take? Well, each of these three folks gives us one particular action. Number one, give God my best. The first guy that's mentioned here is Abel. And by faith, Abel offered to God... A more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Right, now, the story of Cain and Abel. It's the story of the first murder. The story of brothers fighting. And if you're familiar with the story, if you're not familiar with the story, what happened is, it came a period of time after Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Their children raised up. They took jobs. And they then began to offer sacrifices to God. And as they offered their sacrifices to God... God accepted the sacrifice of Abel, but he rejected the sacrifice of Cain. Right? And so the question always people want to know is, why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and reject Cain's sacrifice? And there's all kinds of reasons. But I think the story itself, as we look at it, it, it tells us the answer. Right? In the, it says, in the process of time came to pass, that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. Now Cain, Cain was a farmer. Abel, on the other hand, Abel was a shepherd. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. The question is, okay, why? Why? Now, you look at that and you see they both brought what they had, which would be a natural response. 
They're offering to God. They're giving God something. Cain, as a farmer, brings what he has raised and he gives it to God. Abel is a shepherd and he brings what he has and he gives it to God. And yet God receives one. He rejects the other. What is the reason for that? I'll be honest. I don't think it's because one was a blood offering and one wasn't. That's what's often said. I think that it's much deeper than that. It's a better illustration than that. Because notice what Abel brought. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat. Now, the firstborn, it's the very first. Right? That is, that is the, the very beginning of it. Now, the firstborn is important. Because the firstborn means there's more going to come, right? You have to, but when you give the firstborn, there's nothing left. You're, you're, you're trusting that more will come. You're trusting that there's going to be more after that. In a lot of ways, in the Bible, the firstborn, it was the best of what you had. Now that doesn't count for siblings, like the firstborn sibling is not necessarily the better one, especially in our family. Anyway, um, the firstborn was the, the best of the flock, was kind of the way it was going. And they're fat. Right, the fat was the, the juicy, the goodness. So what Abel brought to God wasn't just, Abel didn't bring just a lamb. He didn't just go out there and pick one. He brought one that was better. He brought one and he brought it entirely, all of it, and offered it to God. Cain, on the other hand, it just says Cain brought an offering from the ground. And what I take from this is that Cain just brought some, and Abel brought the best. And the reason that Abel brought the best, Hebrews 11 says, it was because of his faith. His faith in God, his confidence that God was who he said he was and could do what he said he could do, caused him to bring the best and give it to God and to give it to God entirely. Faith motivates to give God the best. Now, you think, well, what about what does that mean for us? We don't offer sacrifices. This is an Old Testament story. Well, you're partially right. We, as New Testament Christians, we do not offer animal sacrifices for our sins. That has been taken care of for Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that there are not sacrifices that we are to offer. The Bible tells us. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So what is the sacrifice that you and I are to offer to God? It's our lives. It's us. The the message paraphrase says, giving to God your ordinary, everyday, walking around life. We, We are to offer God... All that we have, all that we are, our hopes, our dreams, our lives, our efforts, everything. We are to put our all on the altar. And the idea of a living sacrifice is that it has to be done continually. It has to be done, I mean, every day we have to give ourselves as a sacrifice to God. Every day, we, and maybe even multiple times a day. And it has to be holy. We have to give all of ourselves to God. And we have to give all that we are to Him. And I like how the New King James says it's your reasonable service. Right? And you know what that means? It means it's not exceptional. When we offer our lives as a living sacrifice to God, we have not done anything overly special. We have just done what the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf demands. That's it. 
Right? And, and that's the reason. By the mercies of God, because of what Christ has done for me, I give myself as a living sacrifice to Him. And when I give myself wholly to Him, I've not done anything exceptional. I've just done what's a reasonable response for what He has done for me. Now, one of the things that makes this interesting is when you read the story of Cain and Abel, is Cain gets mad, right? Cain gets angry at God because God accepted Abel's but not his. And in his anger, God comes to him. And don't you just think how God is great, right? Because Cain is angry at God. It's kind of an arrogant thing to do. He gets angry at God. And rather than God just going lightning bolt death, boom, right? God comes to him. And what God tells him in that time is, if you do right, won't you be accepted? And what we learn from that is, regardless of what the standard was, right? however we interpret the more excellent sacrifice, Cain knew what it was. Cain knew what he should have been offering. Right? It wasn't like they just came up with an idea, they offered it, and God said, yes, no. God wasn't being arbitrary. There was, a, there was an understanding that they had, and God told Cain, it's not that I like Abel better than you. It's that he did what I said, and you didn't. And if you do what I say... I'll accept you too. And there's almost, when you read it, an idea that Cain has that God should just be okay with him offering him anything. Cain almost has an idea that says, God, I shouldn't have to give you my best as long as I'm thinking about you and I'm giving you something, God. Rejoice that I thought about you. And God says, no. No. It's not going to happen that way. Faith offers God the very best we have. Faith understands that God is who He says He is. And if God is who He says He is, He is great, and He is awesome, and He is awe-inspiring, and He is fearful to behold. And a God like that is worthy of our best. Faith says God has done what He has said He would do. He has said He would redeem us through faith in Jesus Christ. And because Jesus has saved me from hell and judgment, I will offer Him my best. We also learn from this that God accepts nothing less. Our token thoughts of God do not make God giddy. Our token, at least I'm thinking about you a little bit, does not make God say, I'll take what I can get. In fact, I want to show you this. And we have time. Turn to Malachi chapter 1. And if you ever really want to be challenged in your life, write down Romans 12.1 on a piece of paper. Write it down. Don't copy it. Write it down. And then come and study Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord. Right, and here's what he says first off. You honor humans. Who have authority over you. You honor your bosses. You honor your parents. You give honor to whom honors do. If I am your father. If I am your Lord. Where's my due? And then it goes on. 
And it says, and they say, the priest, it says, to the priest who despised my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Right, so God talks to them to the priest, and he said, you know what, you honor the people who, who deserve honor, but you're not giving me the honor I deserve, and you're despising my name. And then he does the other side of the conversation, because he knows how they'll respond, and they say, well, how, oh, come on, how have we despised your name, O oh Lord? And notice what it says. You defile, you offer defiled food on my offer, on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible when you offer the blind as a sacrifice. Is it not evil when you offer the lame and the sick? Is it not evil? Right? So here's what they're doing. They're not forgetting God. Right? There's a, an offering, a sacrifice they're supposed to make to God. And they're remembering that God demands a sacrifice. But what they're forgetting is that all throughout the Levitical law, the sacrifice says, offer me one without blemish, without spot. You can't offer the blind and the lame. And what they say is this. The blind and the lame, though, I can't use them for anything. I can't breed them. I can't sell them. But I'll give it to God. At least then I'm acknowledging God and I'll keep the good for myself. But I'll give God my junk. I'll give Him my leftovers. And I'm still making the sacrifices. I'm still doing what God commands. And God's going to say, yay, at least they thought of me. And God says, no. That is evil. So just get that in your mind. When we give God the junk of our lives, God doesn't get schoolgirl giddy because we thought of Him. He thinks it's contemptible. He says it's evil. He says in verse 9, But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done in our hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord? So they're offering God their junk, and they're saying, Oh, God bless us. God protect us from our enemies. Make our crops to grow. Make us have easy lives, God. Give us all the things that we want while we offer you our junk. And God says, am I even going to hear a prayer that comes from an attitude like that? goes on. Who is there among you who would even shut the doors so that would not kindle a fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. I mean, do you see what he's saying there? He said, I wish one of you would just shut the door of the temple and let the fire go out. No sacrifices are better than junkie sacrifices. I would rather you just say, we worship Baal and not Yahweh and be honest. Just give me your junk. And as tough as that is, he goes on. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be burned to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be among the nations, says the Lord. So there's God's goal. That all the people would see how great and wonderful He is. Now, how are they going to show the world how great God is? By giving God their best. As they offer God their best, they testify to the world, our God is great, and our God is awesome, and our God is wonderful. And by offering God their junk, they're telling the world, God ain't that great. God ain't that awesome. God ain't that wonderful. You know what? When we 
whole in for God, we're giving Him the best, the world sees. And they say there might be something to that. But when we're offering God the junk of our lives, you know what the world says? I always suspected it wasn't real. I've always kind of suspected it's just kind of a joke. Look at... I mean, if God was like that, if God was really like they'd say, no one who believed in Him would really live like that. He goes on. But you profane my name. That you say the table of the Lord is defiled, its fruit is contemptible. You also say, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, say the Lord. Now, they say, what a weariness. You know what they're saying? God's commands to offer the best. What a burden. What a burden it is to live for God. There's just no way anybody can do that. There's no way anybody's going to do that. And you bring the, the stolen and the lame and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand? Cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow and sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Go ahead and turn back to Hebrews 11. God is not impressed by our token acknowledgement of Him. He is not impressed by our token service to Him. God does not accept those things. God demands we offer Him our best. God deserves that we would offer Him our best. And faith, a faith that trusts God's character, will act on God's promises. And it will give God the best of everything in their lives. That is what faith does. That is an action that faith takes that pleases God. Secondly, walk with Jesus. Not only will faith motivate me to give my best to God, but to walk with Jesus. Enoch is the next guy. And Enoch is interesting in that there is so very little mentioned about him in the Old Testament. In Genesis 5 he's mentioned, and this is the sum total of what we know about Enoch. Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years. And he had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. That's it. That, in this verse right here, that's what we have about Enoch. And what should stand out to us is the repetition. Enoch walked with God. Right here, it said he was taken away. Because he had the testimony that he pleased God. His faith, he was taken away because his faith caused him to walk with God all throughout his life. For Enoch, his relationship with God, it was, a, it was an important thing. It was something that he did kind of all the time in his life. He, he spent his life walking with God. I mean, look, he walked with God 300 years. That's kind of impressive. I mean, to faithfully walk with God for 300 years... He, he made his relationship with God a, a priority in his life. And we think about for us. You know, God wants us to walk with him as well. But the relationship that we have is not like a Sunday morning thing. It's a desire that, that Jesus would be a part of all of our lives, all of the time. 
And I think probably, when I think about what it is to walk with Jesus, one of the, there's an Old Testament passage that I think best sums this up. Micah 6, 8. God has shown you what's good. And here's what the Lord requires. Do justly, love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And of course, the phrase we're going to focus on is the walk humbly with your God. Uh, that is the, the idea that we need to get. That's what Enoch did. He walked humbly with his God. And, and there's two things from that. One is that walk, it's a way of life. Walking with God is a way of life. Walking with Christ, it's a way of life. I think sometimes, and I think we all can do this, we have a, a visitation mentality about our relationship with Jesus. And here's what I mean. We probably have a regular time that we pray and we read our Bible and we come to church. And so we, we come to church today and then we leave. And we, really, we won't really think about Jesus anymore the rest of the day. We've, we're going to take our naps. We're going to watch our TV. We're going to do with the things we've got to do to catch up on the things we didn't get done yesterday. We're going to prepare for tomorrow. Then tomorrow morning we'll get up and we'll read our Bible and we'll pray and then we'll head out on our day and we'll never really think about Jesus again because we've got stuff to do and we're out and about and we're busy people. And what we do in this is we're visiting Him. We visit Him on Sundays and then we visit Him in the mornings and then we really don't think about it anymore throughout the rest of the day. But Jesus doesn't call us to visit Him. He calls us to walk with Him. When He called His disciples, He said, come and follow me. We were always meant to go with him throughout all parts of our lives. I read a blog post a couple of years ago from a guy, and the title of it was, Stop Putting Jesus First. And I thought I had misread it, because the guy had always been pretty solid. And then when I saw that he, I hadn't misread it, I thought that he must have he's lost his mind. What do you mean, don't put Jesus first? And he explained that a lot of times we have priority lists, and we have Jesus, and then family, and then job, or you know, however we break it down. But we have Jesus first, and then this other stuff. He said, but that's not the way the Bible describes it. The Bible never gives us that priority list. Instead, what the Bible talks about is Jesus being a part of all of those things. Right? Like, think about your family, your marriage. Doesn't the Bible tell husbands and wives how they're supposed to treat one another? Doesn't the Bible talk about how parents are to treat their children, how children respond to their parents, how we're to react to, to co-workers and people and stuff? So instead of Jesus and my wife and my children and my job, it's Jesus with my wife. Jesus with my children. Jesus in my job. Jesus in my relationships. Jesus, here let me mess with you, in my finances. Woo! I'm meddling now, I'll move on. But that's the way it's supposed to be in life. Not Jesus, and I visit Him and then I do all this other stuff the way I want, but Jesus... In the midst of everything in my life. I mean, to walk with God for 300 years, that's more than a visit. To walk humbly with your God, you have to, to walk with Him. It's a way of life. He's supposed to be with us all the time, but then, not only to walk as a way of life, but, but humbly. He leads. I follow. We don't Go and Jesus follows us. Jesus goes and we follow Him. Right? To walk humbly with our God, it means that I know He knows better than I do. It means that I have faith that He knows the way and I don't. It means that He leads 
and I follow everywhere we go in life. And again, this is one of those things that we find all throughout Scripture. Romans 14 says that Jesus died and rose again that he might be the Lord over those who are living. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that those who have received this new life are now meant to live for the one who died for them and rose again. Jesus, when he talked about what it meant to follow him, he would say, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me daily. All of our Christian life is meant to be, he leads, we follow. That means that he's the boss. He's the leader. I mean, you can define it however you want to. We can say, Jesus is Lord, and I'm the servant. That's fine. Jesus is the leader, and I'm the follower. Fine. Jesus is the boss, and I'm the worker. Whatever. But however we define it, He's the one with the authority. He's the one that determines the direction. And we follow Him. Again, in every area of our lives. That's what it means to walk with Jesus. I always want to bring this up because there is so much in our world that tries to make Jesus as though He really doesn't care what we do. Right? He's not... He's not bossy. He just wants you to be happy. And as long as you're happy, as long as you're not really hurting anybody else, Jesus doesn't care. But I mean, you don't see that in Scripture anywhere. Jesus was always telling people, leave what you're doing over here, come over here. Go and sin no more. Stop doing that and start doing this. If I'm walking with Jesus... But I'm never having to change anything. I'm never being challenged at all. The reality is I'm probably not walking with Jesus. Jesus has a vastly different idea about things than I do. Walking with Jesus caused me to become a pastor when I wanted to be something very different in my life. Following Jesus will always lead us in directions that will challenge us, that will change us, that will really overwhelm us at times. Walking with Jesus, that's, that's a faith issue. When I, when I trust His character, I'll act on His promises, and I'll go the way He says. I'll walk with Him all throughout my life. And that is an action of faith that pleases God. And then the final one, I give God my best, I walk with Jesus, and I live in obedience. Noah is such a great example. It says, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark, the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which according to faith. Noah's is interesting. Because he was divinely warned of things not yet seen. Um, I mean, think about that. Think about if you lived in a world where you'd never seen rain. Think about if someone in Gaiman was building a great big boat 
because the ocean was about to come here. What, what would you think of someone building a boat, a great big boat out in their backyard because God told them to? Because rain was going to fall from the sky and Sunset Lake was going to flood and we'd all be needed or die. Right? How many of us would be like, let me help? That is obviously a God thing. I mean, that's kind of the way it was for Noah. From what we understand, he lived in a very landlocked area. There was no, no flooding, no rain before this time. God kind of started it all on that day. So he's told, God's about to kill everybody. And the only way to be saved is to build a great big boat. And so Noah just sets off and he does what God says. And that's how we know that Noah believed God. Right? God told him. And then Noah said, I believe you. And then his belief moved into action. He built a great big boat. In the end, that's really what faith is always about. God says, and even if it's unseen, and even if it's strange, we believe and we act. I mean, that's what everybody in this chapter did. They believed God, and so they did something in response to that. Faith always obeys. Faith always does what God wants us to do. And we, there is no way to separate faith and obedience. I cannot say I believe God's way is best if I don't do my dead level best to live God's way. I can't say God's way of money, handling money is best if I'm not willing to use my money in the way that God says. I can't say that God's word on redeeming time is best if I don't redeem the time. I can't say that God's plan of salvation is best if I'm not actively out trying to reach people for Jesus Christ. Anytime I believe God, I have to act on that. I have to do what God says. We looked the first week that doubt leads to disobedience and disobedience leads to death. I'm convinced. Any area of our lives where we disobey God, it's because we doubt something He has said. We doubt His way is best. We doubt He will provide. We doubt He'll keep His word. We, we doubt, so we disobey. Faith, it always obeys. And the thing is, it doesn't mean we have all the answers. I, I, can't, I can't imagine Noah understood everything that God had told him to do. And everything that God was saying. I mean, even with just the judgment. What if God told you he was about to kill everybody but you and your family on the earth? Could you even wrap your mind fully around the fact that God was about to drown the whole world but you and your family? I don't know that I could. Just to be like, man, that's, that's unreal. Everybody we know is going to die. But he had to believe, okay, I guess that's what's going to happen, so we have to do it. I read a story about a, a guy, and behind their house, they had a, a big wall. And the wall was like 60 feet wide, and it started at 3 feet, and it went up to 5 feet, and it went up to 8 feet. And his son asked if he could go from one end to the other, climb it, and run over it, and he was 5. And he said, okay, go for it. So the kid climbed up on the three feet and he ran to the five feet and he jumped up to there. Then he went to get up to the eight feet and he started to do it, but he got a little scared and said, ah, I don't want to do it anymore, Dad. I'm going to come down. So his dad said, jump. And he said, will you catch me? He said, yeah, I'll catch you. And so the kid jumped and they caught him. And he said the, the, the issue was never 
would I catch my kid? I would. The issue was never, could I catch my kid? I could. The issue was, would his faith in me overcome his fear of jumping? Or would his fear of jumping overcome his faith in me? You know, and that's the issue that we have to deal with in, in everything in our lives. Because obeying God is often scary. And the issue is never, will God do what he has said he will do? He always will. The issue is never, can God do what he has said he will? He absolutely can. The issue is, will our fear of jumping overcome our faith in God? Or will our faith in God overcome our fear of jumping? And the only way to say that our faith overcomes our fear is by jumping. Faith always leads us to obey God, to do what he said. When it's fearful, it doesn't make sense. When we can't comprehend how it would all work, faith leaps into the arms of our Father, knowing that he can and he will catch us. Is that what you see in your life? Do you live a life that is always safe, never requires faith, never requires risk? That's not the Christian life. That's not the life of faith. The life of faith always requires some risk. There's always an element if God doesn't come through, it's not going to work. That's a part of every area of our lives all the time. And if I trust God's character, I'll obey Him. Act on His promises. That is an action of faith that pleases God. Let's stand.